Good morning. The scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. If you are using the Bible provided for you, uh, you can find the passage in page 1016. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly didn't obey, when God patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but Christ, but but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Thanks, Volta. You know, there's a good tradition amongst churches, a historic tradition of, you know, she said that at the end of, this is the word of God. And typically, congregations then reply, uh, thanks be to God. Have you ever, anyone been in that tradition before? Okay. Yeah, that's a good tradition. Maybe we should start that. So, Volta may have just started something new here. So, um, that's really good. So, this passage is one of those texts that preachers, if we don't preach, if we weren't preaching sequentially through a book, we would never preach this text. (laughs) Okay? This is one of those where, like, you know, if you're choosing the text to preach on, you're really not going to choose this. Now, I have taught from a portion of this text before and the baptism part of it before. Uh, But this is one of those texts where there's, there's a lot in here. Um, this has been a, 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 a great week of study and even more leading up to it, but uh, about this text here. Martin Luther, who is uh, known to be one of the more dogmatic people that's ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, the guy had an opinion about everything. I mean, he would have an opinion about what type of deodorant you should be wearing probably if he lived today. This is what he said about this text. It's a wonderful text, it is. A more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for certain just what Peter meant. (laughs) Right? What Peter means here. So, if we have a dogmatic theologian, a reformer like Luther, who's like, yeah, I'm just not sure here. What does that mean for us today? Does it mean we can't know it? Well, no, of course. We can can get some good insights into what this text is saying, and I think that by the end of the time we will. But... What it means is that we're going to have to roll our sleeves up a little bit here, okay? We're going to have to do some theological work here and uh, kind of dig in. And so the first part of this is going to be kind of like more how I'd lecture on this if I were to lecture in a classroom setting because I just have to work through this in order for us to to figure out what's going on here because there's a lot that's going on here. So uh, we're going to raise three questions this morning and hopefully answer them. And these three questions are, you know, what is Peter saying in this text, okay? So I'm going to walk through, and there's really two main parts to this text 
that, are, that could be very confusing, and we just got to spend some time uh, uh, figuring out what he's saying there. Then, so once we figure out, okay, what is he saying? We have to then answer the question, well, why did he include it here in this argument that he's doing in this letter he's writing to these exiles? Why, why, these, why did he include this here? And then thirdly, pastorally, we're going to say, okay, what impact or relevance does Peter's point then have on us today? Okay, so that's how we're going to frame our time together. And uh, I'm going to pause and ask God's blessing, and then we're just going to dive in, okay? Father, thank you uh, that we have this text before us. I pray that as I teach through it, that I would communicate in a way that is helpful, but most importantly, that is accurate, uh, accurate to what you have for us here, is accurate to the scriptures, and uh, I pray for your spirit's leading and guidance as, as I teach. I pray for those who are listening, whether here or online, I pray that you'd remove distractions and, and give uh, good interaction and help us to think biblically and think through the scriptures here together. And I pray that I would uh, be free from distraction as well, and that at the end of this day, we would say that you have done just a, a really encouraging thing through your word. And uh, this is your word, and we want to be uh, submissive to it, and we want your spirit to guide us. And so we just pause and ask for your guidance. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right. So first of all, what is Peter saying in this text here? There's really two main difficulties in this text that we gotta, we, we're just going to have to work through here if we're going to understand this. The, the first one is, is that when it talks about, in verse 19 in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What is that about? What is he teaching there? Why is it he's bringing up who are these spirits? Uh, where is this prison? Why did Jesus do this? When did Jesus do this? Um, we're going to have to work through that. The second thing is in this text is when it says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay. I remember as a youth pastor, I was, uh, uh, this was years ago, this was probably about year 2000, somewhere around there, I was a youth pastor, and one of uh, my students, or one of my teens in the youth group came to me, he's like, Pastor Jeremy, I, I was reading my Bible, and I came to this, and, and it says that baptism saves us, this is what the text, this is what it says here, but, but you've told us that salvation is only through grace, and it's not through works, and it's not through baptism, so you know, what's going on here? You know, so this was, this was really concerning to him, and so we, we talked to it. So these are the two main difficulties in this text that we're going to have to work through if we're going to understand Peter's point, okay? So we're going to take those in actually reverse order. So we're going to talk about the baptism thing first, and then we're going to talk about the prison thing, because uh, I think the baptism one, maybe we can just plow through that maybe a little bit faster even. So baptism now saves you. What is he doing here? First of all, in order to understand what's going on here, we have to understand that verse 17 is very important to verse 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be for God's will, than for doing evil. For then Christ suffered for us. So he's bringing this up, this illustration of Christ. But then in his argumentation, he uses the illustration of baptism. And so what Peter is doing here, he's going to draw a parallel between baptism and the ark in Genesis chapter 6. Okay, He's just mentioned 
ark in the, while the, in verse 20, he says it was God's patience in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptisms, which corresponds to this. What is that this there? Well, it's talking about this idea of the ark in the Genesis flood of chapter 6 here. In the parallel, there's really three components about God that he's going to draw a parallel to. First of all, he's going to draw the parallel of God's patience. Notice that he talks here, he says, that is when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay? So what he's doing, he's using the illustration of Genesis 6 to say, okay, this is how God acts, and this is how he's acting today. This is how he's acting then, and this is how he's acting for you today. So then... God was very patient in the days of Noah. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, and we won't do two for time's sake, but if you're going to go to Genesis chapter 6, what you would see there is you'd see that um, uh, God brought up uh, um, the, um, the issue of what was going on, the wickedness of the land, and then he says this. He says, the days of man shall be 120 years. Then it talks about the account of the Genesis flood. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that the average lifespan of a man would be in 120 years? That's not what he was saying. He was saying, he was pronouncing judgment. God was saying that in 120 years, judgment for the wickedness of the world was going to happen in 120 years. That's what he was saying there. So for 120 years, God was patient with the wickedness of man, allowing them the opportunity to turn away from the wickedness. And then not only that, during the entire time that the ark was being built, then God was patient as well while Noah was preaching while he was building the ark here. So we see then God's patience. Now he's reminding them that they're living also in the patience of God. They're living in the patience of God while people are persecuting them and people are mocking them and people are taking their property and their possessions in the name of, you know, to, to persecute them for their faith and stuff. This is the things that they were dealing with. They were suffering for doing good. We know that's the context here. He says, you're living, just for understanding, you're living in the patience of God. You're, you're not seeing the enemies being dealt with right now. But just like Noah, when he was in the days of Noah, he didn't see the judgment of God right away either and the wickedness of the world. And so this was the patience of God. So he's drawing a parallel here. He says, just like then, it's in the patience of God here. Then he talks about, but wrath is coming. So just because God's patient doesn't mean that wrath isn't coming. And so he talks then about what is God's wrath then, about that, well, that um, God pours out his wrath in the judgment waters of the Genesis 6 flood. He's talking about this. He's bringing this whole story up to show, okay, but God's wrath is coming, even though that while we live in the patience of Christ, and some of you, were, I mean, we're living in the patience of Christ right now, so moving even beyond Peter's audience, right now, we're living in the patience of Christ in the fact that he hasn't executed his judgment. There's time for you to repent right now, but that time may end today. That time may end at any moment. And so if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't asked God to save you, you haven't called out to him to save you, today is the day, my friend, because you're living in the patience of God right now. But judgment's coming. The Bible says wrath is coming. And so that's what he's reminding Peter's audience here. He's saying, okay, just like in the days of Noah, God's patience, there was a time, and God's wrath came out in the, in the judgment waters of the Genesis 6 flood. That's when he talks about, okay, now baptism saves you, okay? The, the eight people were brought safely through the water, but baptism corresponds to save you. So not only is the patience of God talked about, not only is his wrath talked about, but then this idea of his salvation here. 
This is the point that Peter's bringing. This is one of the reasons why Genesis 6 is being brought up here. We're going to see for our second theological difficulty here, Genesis 6 is also, I believe, going to play a key role here. So salvation here. God brought them, being the people in the ark, safely through the waters of judgment. Okay, safely through that. He brought them safely through that, through the ark here, while those judgment waters surrounding them. It was also the waters that ironically saved them because the ark floated on top of the waters. So God brought them safely through that, and even the surrounding circumstances God used then to secure their salvation. Okay, he says that's what's happening here. He's talking to this group of people who are really struggling. They're going through persecution for suffering for doing good. And he's encouraging them and saying, you're not alone in this. Noah's family went through this. God has consistently done this where he's patient, wrath comes, but salvation is possible if you trust in him, if you follow him and, you, and ask him to save you from your sins. So, God brought Noah safely through the waters of judgment. And what he's saying to them, he says, in your baptismal waters, when you stood in the water and then you were brought under and brought back up, he says, you were brought safely through the waters of judgment as well. It's a picture of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. But it's also a picture of being safely brought through waters of judgment. So, for instance, and I, I talk about this when I do baptism sometimes, is that we get into the baptismal tank, you know, right up there, and we get in there, and the water's yay high or whatever. And uh, whenever I'm talking to, you know, uh, you know, particularly to a younger person, maybe they were baptizing, we make sure we go through and they understand everything, and I go through the mechanics of it. Some of you who have baptized, you'll remember this, right? I tell you how to hold your hands and stuff like that. I say, you know, make you know, go like this, grab this, you know, so you can plug your own nose, and then I have a handle to pull you up, okay? All right? I say, because you want me to pull you up. Right? You know, because if you wonder, okay, and I just, you know, sit around talking, you know, for a while and like, you know, so let me tell you his story. You know, so if I baptize him, well, you know, before I bring him up, let me just make sure you understand the theological significance of baptism here. It's really important that you understand that right now, this person underneath the water is symbolizing Jesus' death and burial, that he is now buried in the ground here. And I'm just keeping the person under. What's going to happen at that point? You're going to see some lakes flailing. You're going to see some water splashing, right? It's like, hey, come on, I'm making a point here, you know? <laughs> you know, I have to bring them up safely through that water, right? Because if I let them, if I hold them down too long, it's a bad news, right? It's bad news, right? This is the whole picture of baptism. Safely through, so Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, but also that we've been brought safely through waters of judgment, just like Noah was. The Genesis account in Noah, uh, the story of Noah, was highly, was so important to theological thought, particularly in the first century, and it should be to us today. So this is what he's doing. He's drawing this parallel. He says, they were brought safely through waters of judgment. Your baptism is a picture of this that corresponds to this. And so we're brought safely through that, okay? And so getting into the ark for Noah was his outward expression of an inward faith that God would keep his word, okay? What, he, what God had told him, I'm going to bring judgment. I've been patient, but I'm going to bring judgment, okay? You've got to build this ark, and, you gotta, and it's going to rain, and it's going to flood the earth, and you've got to get in this ark, and then this is how it's going to save you. Getting into the ark was an outward act 
an expression of faith, of the inward faith that he had, that what God was going to keep his word and that he, what he said was true. Baptism is the same thing. It's an outward expression of an inward faith that God is going to keep his word. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's saying, God, I want to be saved, and so I am going to show outwardly, by, because you've told me to, I'm going to show outwardly what inwardly you have done in my life in this term of faith and following Jesus Christ. And so there's this outward act of an inward faith, okay, representing that. He say, so what does he mean by when he says it will save you there? Well, Peter makes it very clear what he's not saying. He's not saying that it means salvation in terms of if you're baptized, then you are going to be washed from all your sins because he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, what he means by that is he's saying, this isn't what truly cleanses you, okay? He says, but it's an appeal to God. It's, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So like Noah, our baptism is a public expression of faith in an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's why we're baptized, okay? It's a public expression of our faith. And it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, saying, I want to follow you. I want to be known as a follower of yours. And so I'm appealing to you and based on your word, and I'm trusting in you and you alone. And so this is what I'm doing. This is a picture of it here, okay? Side note. Of all the modes of baptism, and there's good men and theologians who disagree on this, but I'm of, of the camp of believers' baptism by immersion. Of all the modes of baptism, believers' baptism by immersion is the one that best fits this analogy here. Sprinkling doesn't fit here. There's no waters of judgment by being sprinkled. Okay, And again, I'm not trying to mock. I'm not trying to look down. Uh, and also, how does an infant make an appeal to God? for a good conscience here. So of all the modes of baptism, I think the most biblically consistent is that there's believer's baptism, that someone's making an appeal, that they have, they're believing, and that there's a, a picture being brought safely through waters of judgment as immersion here. Something to think about here. So of all the modes of baptism, immersion is the best one to fit this analogy of the ark and being brought safely through the waters of judgment. So how would I summarize this first difficult thing? It, part of the text is this. Peter draws a parallel between Noah's circumstances with his reader's circumstances by highlighting God's patience, wrath, and salvation. That's what he's doing here when he says baptism now saves you, okay? I need to move on because of time, but if you want to talk about this, I'm, I'm happy to keep talking about this. And some of you are like, yeah, but I, I kind of want to get to the next one anyway. Yeah, what is this whole thing about preaching to spirits in prison? What's that about? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about it. Okay, there are three main views to this, okay? Three main views of what Peter's doing here. First of all, Athanasius, he believed that sometime between Jesus' death and resurrection, that he went down to the dead, Jesus went down to the dead, and he preached in Hades or in hell, Okay. And so according to Athanasius' view that there's a good side of Hades and a bad side of Hades, and so he would go down there and he preached to the dead that were in, in this Hades, okay? And this happened, according to Athanasius, between when Jesus died and his resurrection. So the three days there, this is what Jesus did, okay? Most people who hold Athanasius' view uh, believe that he preached salvation to the dead of Noah's day. Okay. So the ones who were destroyed in the Genesis flood, the ones who lost their lives in that, Jesus went back and he preached to them and uh, basically sealed their fate. Okay? Some, some believe that when Jesus went during those three days, he preached to the repentant dead to assure them that they were forgiven. 
Others said that he preached to just the wicked population of Noah's day, sealing their fate, like I just said. But the first one was that the idea that he actually then, in origin, was going to expand this later on, and Clement as well of Alexandria, is that, that what Jesus did is he actually offers another chance of salvation. Okay? It's a debt. So that's theory number one. Theory number one is that sometime between Jesus' death and his resurrection, he goes down to hell and he preaches to the saints, different people have different ideas of what he preached, but that he preached that, okay? Move to the second one. Augustine, he argued that Jesus, before his incarnation, okay, and so pre-existing Christ, before he was born of the Virgin Mary, and then working through the power of the Holy Spirit, he preached through Noah to Noah's generation. So when we read about Noah preaching to his generation, Augustine says that this text is saying that Jesus was preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit through Noah to Noah's generation. That's what he means here. So as it says, when he went, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He was talking about those are the people of Noah's day that he is preaching to. So Noah's preaching was really Jesus preaching through Noah. Okay, So that's theory number two for this. The third main interpretation of this is that the risen Christ proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels that sinned in Noah's day, okay? Fallen angels that sinned in Noah's day. You say, well, what are these fallen angels sinned in Noah's day about? That really causes us another interpretive difficulty in Genesis chapter 6, okay? All right? Who says theology is boring, all right? I mean, this is fun. This is like, you know, uh, you know my friend Nate, you know, you know, Nate, you know him here. He's in our small group, and he has this, this phrase that I love it. Every time he says it, he's like, this puts my brain in a pretzel, you know? You know, talking about this stuff is so, it's so good. I, I tell you, I have spent so much time just going back and forth. It's been so much fun. Okay, so a third interpretation is that Jesus proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels, the, the um, that sinned in Noah's day. Okay, so I could take a survey. I'm not going to, but, you know, I kind of wonder who's in what camp here or whatever like this. But I figure I thought about doing this, but I figured most people aren't going to vote anyway. You know, no one. And you do it something like this, and someone's like, I ain't voting. No, no, I'm not going to say which one I believe in. But think to yourself, okay, which one makes the most sense to you, okay? These are the three main ones. I mean, I'm sure you can find others, but these are the three main interpretations. If you look up in any commentary, things like this, you're going to read about these three. Okay. So, I have the privilege of teaching this text, and so I'm going to give you my interpretation of it. But before I do that, let me just tell you that good people differ on this, and it's okay. okay? This is not one of those areas where we have to be agreed on. There are plenty of other areas in Scripture where we absolutely have to be agreed on. This is not one of those areas. Okay? There's, so whatever position we hold, myself included, we should do so with some, with some humility, understanding that, you know what, good people disagree on this, and it's not central to our faith, and so it's okay. But I do think that this last interpretation makes the most sense in the context. So I would hold to this last interpretation of this. So that means I've got to back up, and I've got to do a lot of explaining here. Okay, what is this talking about? In Genesis chapter 6... Um, I'll read it there in Genesis chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 6. Uh, this is page 5 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. We have this text of Scripture, okay, that, again, there's, there's a lot of interpretive challenges with this. Okay, so it says, when man, this is Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land 
and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. I referenced that a few minutes ago. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So here's the, here's the debate. Who are the sons of God in this text? Again, there's different interpretations on this. Some say this is the godly line of Seth. Okay, Seth being one who kind of stepped in uh, when Cain killed Abel. Seth steps in, takes up Abel's line and place in the family and preserves a godly line of Adam and Eve. And so some say that that's what this is talking about here. Um, others say, and this is what I would hold to, is that these are actually fallen angels. Okay, so this is like angels coming down, commingling with humans and uh, having offspring, okay? He say, this is bizarre. This is like science fiction. I know, isn't it so fun? <laughs> all right, all right. Just to wrestle through this a little bit here. And he's like, how many of you are just like, I have never heard. I know there's some people here that are going, I have never heard this before. Keep in mind, then, there's, there's good people differ on this, okay? But I've just got to teach through what I think is most faithful to the text, and hopefully I can make sense of this. Why do I believe that? Why do I believe the sons of God uh, means this? Well, because the expression, the exact expression, sons of God, in the Hebrew Bible only occurs about four or five times, okay? That exact expression, sons of God. Now, we have, you know, relationally, Adam as like a, a, a figure of like God being the father and things like that. We have that. But the, the phrase, okay, these are the sons of God, it only appears a few times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, one of those is here. Okay, we see it here in um, two times in Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 and 4 that we just read. Another time we find it is in Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, we get the background of the temptation of Job, and it says, and when the sons of God presented themselves before God, or sons of man, excuse me, presented themselves before God, then God asked Satan, where were you going? What were you doing? Clearly, it's a reference to angels in that text there in Genesis, excuse me, Job chapter 1. Also, Job chapter 2, the exact phrase is used again, clearly referring to angels. Also, Job 38 as well. The last time that we see this phrase pop up in the Old Testament, this exact phrase, is actually in the book of Daniel and actually appears in, in Aramaic. And this is in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. And remember when Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, and I see the fourth as of the Son of God in with them. Very much so could have been an angelic presence. So it seems that in every time this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's in reference to angels of some sort here. So I also think this would further explain, if it is the sons of God, I think it would explain two other passages in the New Testament that are kind of confusing, okay? So let's go back over to, I told you we're going to have to do some work today. Go over to 2 Peter. We were talking in, in 1 Peter. We'll go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, okay? 2 Peter chapter 2. This is page 1018 in the Bibles provided for you there. So what Peter's doing here is he's talking about false prophets who are coming in and they're having destructive 
impact on the church. I mean, these are heresies, clear heresies, but they're having a destructive impact on the church. And he's again encouraging believers to saying, but their impact isn't going to be eternal. And he says, God is not going to stand idly by forever on this. His patience is going to run out. Verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 2 says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of glooming darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. He brings Noah up into this again, just like he did in, in the first letter, First Peter. A herald of righteousness, which seven others he brought through the flood. Talks about Sodom and Gomorrah again. He's saying if he's doing all this, then surely, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Okay. So he brings up angels who committed some atrocity, some terrible sin that, that, that God had to judge. He said, I had to pour out my judgment on this. In my understanding of the scriptures, Genesis 6 makes the most sense that if these were angels who, who were co-mingling with humans and God is judging them for it. One other text, though, that hopefully, because I know I haven't won everyone over on this yet, okay? All right? Because this, this is difficult. That's okay. Jude, go over to Jude. Jude, verse 6, okay? Again, just a few pages over. Uh, this will be page uh, 1027, I believe. Yep, 1027, okay? So Jude here is writing, and he says this. Um, again, talking about false teachers, and talking about how God is going to judge. Verse 5 he says, now I want to remind you, although once, uh, you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not believe. So it's talking about wrath coming. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change unto, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah in the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, God's patience, God's wrath, but God's salvation as well. These are themes that Peter, that Jude, and all the New Testament is giving. But what are the illustrations they're going for? They're going for angels here that have have tried to disrupt God's plan, that have left their, what the state that they were supposed to stay in, in their, uh, in their heavenly state. They went down to earth. I believe this makes the most sense of Genesis chapter 6 then, of being these fallen angels here, okay? Also mentioned, Jude is going to quote, in verses 14 and 15, the book of First Enoch, okay? Now, First Enoch is not a book in our canon. It's not one that was in the Hebrew canon, but it was a very popular book, particularly in the first century. And so Peter's writer, readers would have been very familiar, just like Jude's readers would have been very familiar with First Enoch. And if you read First Enoch, it includes this entire story of angels leaving heaven and commingling with human women. Okay, First Enoch does. Now, just because it, it's not a canonical book, it's not inspired, but that doesn't mean it's not helpful to us here. So Peter is leaning on their understanding of this, and he's saying, okay, here's what's happening here. Here's what's happening is that 
Christ suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. Then he talks about how the God, that he went and he proclaimed to these spirits in prisons. I believe what he's saying here is that he's saying he's talking to these, these, these angels who sinned against God and left to go down to, to, to earth to co-mingle with women. Now, some of you may be thinking right now, wait a minute, Jeremy. What about Matthew 22? Matthew 22, Jesus clearly states that in the resurrection, we are going to be like the angels. And we are not going to marry nor be given in marriage. Okay? So doesn't that just kind of blow a hole in your theory there? Well, I don't think so. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here. Okay? All right? Here's, the, here's how I would answer that. Piece together what Jesus actually said there with what Jude, we just read Jude said. Jesus said that in heaven, we will be like the angels in heaven, okay, who neither marry nor are given to marriage. The whole punishment that he gave to the angels, according to Jude, was because they left their heavenly dwelling to come to earth to experience the relations with women here. And God says, we can't have that. And so he destroys, okay? His wrath is poured out on that. So I think that just because he says the angels are not married in heaven doesn't mean that there's no problem to the fact that angels did that on earth because they left their heavenly dwelling. That's what Genesis 6, or excuse me, Jude 6 is talking about here. Um, so this is also why I think Jude mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, Peter mentions Sodom and Gomorrah because who did the townspeople demand to have relations with? It was the angels, right? Okay. It was the angels. So simply put, that just means that humans have found angels attractive. And so the idea of this co-mingling isn't foreign to uh, New Testament thought. So how would I summarize this, okay? I've taken a lot of time to lay this groundwork because it's super important. And the last two points are going to go real quickly here. Peter is teaching that sometime after Jesus rose from the dead, he proclaimed victory and judgment to the imprisoned fallen angels mentioned in Genesis 6. I believe that's what's going on here, okay? Now, again, good people differ on this. And maybe some of you are like, okay, I'm not convinced. That's fine. No problem. Um, but think through. Think through all the, the difficulties of, of what interpretation you might have. I don't think Jesus offered another plan of salvation or another chance of salvation. I think that goes against when it says, for it's appointed to man once to die and after this a judgment, okay? I don't think that there's that. And I can't think of any other reason why Jesus would go and proclaim so lots to think about here, okay? So, but that brings up the second question. So we're going to go off my premise here, okay, that this is what the Peter's saying happened here, that Jesus, sometime after he rose from the dead, and so, I, so that's a distinction too. This is not in the three days while Jesus was in the grave. And I believe that because it says he was made alive in the spirit, Okay, verse 18. So it was in that aliving of the, in that, that being made alive in the spirit. So it wasn't while he was dead. There was after his resurrection that he goes and proclaims victory and judgment to the imprisoned fallen angels mentioned in Genesis 6. Also, Jude uh, 6 and Second uh, Peter chapter 2. So here's the question. Why did he include what he did here? I mean, did Peter write this going... And Christians for years are going to be going, what is he talking about? <laughs> and this is like this prank that Peter's playing on all of us biblical interpreters. Now, the first people, the people that he was writing to would have instantly understood what he was talking about. But keep in mind, biblical interpretation, key point to interpreting the Bible, the Bible was not written to us. Now, it's written for us, for our benefit, but it wasn't written to us. 
And so because it was written to a different group of people, they would have had understanding in their background. I think their knowledge of First Enoch would have informed that a little bit more, but also just it would have made more sense to them. But that doesn't mean we can't understand it. It doesn't mean that we can't benefit from it. Okay, so why did he include? Well, let's go back to verse 17 and 18. I think that that's really important. It says it's better to suffer for doing good than it should be uh, for, if that's God's will, than for doing evil. That's the main point. And he's now in verses 18 through 22 supporting that point because the word for at the beginning of chapter, of verse 18, is super important to properly interpret this. For Christ suffered. So he's saying, so by example, or so, so, so you understand this, let me tell you what's happening here, okay? So here's what I believe is what he's saying here is that suffering for doing good should be expected because Jesus suffered for doing good. Now, keep in mind here, the suffering that Peter's talking about all throughout the book is suffering for doing good, suffering for righteous, suffering for following Jesus. It's not talking about suffering as a result of bad choices and, and consequences of bad choices. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you're following Christ and you're being persecuted or you're suffering for it here. He says, Jesus suffered for this. So the fact that Jesus suffered for this, you should expect. He suffered for doing good. You should expect it as well. He's saying, so don't get discouraged. And another way of saying it, he's saying, don't think of the fact that you're, being, you're going through this persecution. Don't think about that God is somehow upset with you. Or don't think it's because God's angry with you. Or because you've done something wrong or something. He says, no. He says, you should expect this. This goes completely against what is known as prosperity gospel, by the way. I mean, completely against it right? He says, if Christ suffered for this, we should expect that as well. Secondly, I think what's happening here is he says, suffering for doing good is temporary and leads to eternal triumph and victory. That's the reason why he talks about Jesus going and proclaiming victory and proclaiming triumphs to that angelic host that tried to subvert his plan. And he says, no, there's, there's victory over even your plan. So suffering for doing good is temporary, which leads to eternal triumph and victory. Conversely, suffering for uh, e evil is eternal. And so he's making this parallel here of saying that the suffering for doing good, it's okay because Christ suffered for us, but we live in the patience of God. God's wrath is going to pour, be poured out upon the wicked, and then the salvation is possible from that, okay? So the question then comes is, well, why do you mention the angels? Why did you bring that up? Peter is identifying Jesus as the victor over evil in both the spirit world and the human world, okay? He's saying that no matter what, Jesus is king and sovereign over all. That explains verse 22, by the way. Look at verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the point that he's trying to encourage these people with, he's saying, listen, you're discouraged because it seems like you're against all these powers and these, these mights against you. Let me tell you what Jesus did. After his resurrection, he went down and he proclaimed to the ones who were in prison and he says, I've got victory and I've, I've risen from the dead and no matter what happens, the plan has been sealed and your fate has been sealed and salvation is only possible through, through me. And he says, you know, the wickedness is going to be judged. And so he's saying here, so just because people are going through trials and difficulty and it feels like the, the forces against us are so much stronger than what we could bear against, he says, in human and in the spirit world, everything is subjected to Christ. That's what he's saying here. So he's bringing this up. That's why he brings angels up into it. Okay, I get that. So he's saying, don't despair. Take confidence in the power of Christ. Well, why mention baptism then? 
Why did he have to do that? Because it's a reminder that we live in God's patience right now. And that his wrath is reality. That God will judge those persecuting him. And that salvation comes through appealing to God based on the power of his resurrection. And so he says, this is where your hope comes in, is appealing to God. And your baptism should be the outward expression of your inward faith in him. That's the encouragement he's trying to give these suffering Christians here. So what impact does this have? So that's why he includes it. I believe that's what he's doing here. What's the impact? You say, okay, this was a great theological lesson. Um, So what does it matter, though? What does it matter? Well, I think it matters for a few reasons. And we'll just go through this very quickly here. And I I know this is worded awkwardly, but I I did it intentionally um, just so that you could see the point here. If Jesus, who's righteous, was willing to suffer for us, who are naturally unrighteous, we, the unrighteous, should be ready to suffer for Jesus, the righteous. Okay? Okay? That's the point he's making here. He's saying, don't be despairing about this. This isn't a sign of God being uh, upset with you or you doing something wrong or something. He goes, the persecution you're fearing, this is, this is an opportunity for you to suffer for the righteous because the righteous has suffered for you, the unrighteous. Okay? Secondly, I think the story of Noah and his family should encourage us to suffer well if feeling isolated and alone in a hostile culture. Did you notice that it says in verse 20, it says that, that God's patience waited in the days of Noah in which the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is eight persons. Only eight people were saved. You want to talk about feeling alone? You want to talk about feeling isolated? You want to talk about feeling like the only one in your community who wants to follow God? That's Noah. Noah was the only one in his community and all really who who follow God in that situation. He was the only one. Talk about feeling alone. Talk about feeling isolated. Talk about feeling like, well... Am I the crazy one here? Am I the crazy one here? I mean, everyone else seems to be thinking differently. But he says, don't let the the few numbers discourage you. In our culture today, it's easy to feel like we're very few in numbers. It's easy to feel like we are pushing against a culture and we are pushing against a a thought that is anti-biblical and it is wrong. And it's easy to get discouraged let us take heart in this right here. What Peter's saying, he's saying, don't let the few numbers discourage you at all. In which a few, eight people saved. God's salvation was for the few. And so the story of Noah should encourage us. Two other reasons I believe it's important and should impact us. Believer's baptism is intended, the intended, God's intended way for us to publicly express our faith in him and to symbolize our acceptance into his covenantal family. This is the reason why we should be baptized. And so some of you need to be baptized, okay? Some of you have expressed faith in Christ, and and so you say, "I, I believe in Christ, but you haven't followed Christ in the waters of baptism. This is God's intended ways for you to make that public, make that public, and then the Lord's Supper is how we continue that. But the waters of baptism have so much symbolism there, and God says, I want you to publicly profess that. I want you to, to make this public appeal for a good conscience, 
And so if you're not baptized, I would highly encourage you to think that through. And I would love that chance to talk with you more about that, okay? Uh, this is a great way for us to, this is a great application for, for some of us today. Lastly, nothing can separate us from God's love and power. This is why it matters to you. This is why this text here matters to you. So when you go to work tomorrow and you feel like you're the only one that is dealing, that has a, even a, a, a remotely close biblical worldview, and you feel like you are just pushing against the culture, just remember God's patience, God's wrath, God's salvation. And this is the examples that he's showing here. And that we can take encouragement from Noah that God saves and that, that the few in number should not discourage us, but we follow Christ and we shine as lights in this dark world like Philippians tells us to do here, okay? So nothing can separate us from God's love and power, no matter how powerful evil forces seem to be. That's why he mentions the angels, I believe. That's why he says, even those God subjected. And even those, so no matter how powerful you think this world is, no matter how powerful even governments are, and nations are, and laws are, and militaries are, and angelic hosts, whatever it is, nothing is more powerful than Christ. And we can rest in that, and we can take joy in that. So, suffering for doing good should not surprise us. We can look ahead to chapter 4, where it says, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you, but rejoice. And so, we know that it shouldn't surprise us. Peter's illustrations here give us hope that no one is more powerful than Christ, no human, no angels. And so, we should embrace our baptism as a wonderful opportunity to show our dependence on Christ and to save us from judgment and to, for his uh, gift of salvation here. 